Good morning. Um, glad to be here with you guys. I, there was a chance that I wasn't going to make it this week uh, as I flew from Hawaii into LA on Friday. As some of you know, California's been getting a whole lot of storms, and uh, I wasn't entirely sure I was going to get back yesterday to preach today. Um, but you were going to get a great example of uh, Jeff's impromptu uh, teaching, so that was, it could have been really entertaining. <laughs> as it is, uh, we'll continue on in Mark chapter 13. And uh, as, as we come to Mark 13 today, it's a chapter, as many of you know, uh, all about time. And as, as we look at, you know, the future, there's kind of two types of people. There's those that like to know the end before they get there, and there's those that really don't. There's uh, a woman I know who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty that prefers to read the end of books first. And this woman that I happen to know and have known for 27 years, but who shall remain nameless... If, if she likes the end, she might read some in the middle, and if it's really good, she might work her way all the way back to the beginning. And, and I just, I don't get that. Uh, I'm working on it. By, by year 30, maybe I'll understand. Um, but when it comes to bigger things than books or movies, almost all of us like to know the end. We, we really do, e- even me. Right? The, the important things, things like, you know, are my kids going to grow up and, and know Christ? Are they going to be happy and, and well-adjusted? Are they going to take care of me when I'm old? Like, we want to know these things, right? And, and that's what we get to today with uh, chapter 13 in Mark. Now, chapter 13, as many of you know, is uh, called the Olivet Discourse. It's recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels. So the parallel to Mark 13 is in Matthew chapter 24 and part of 25 and in Luke chapter 21. And it's the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Now there are longer sermons Jesus gives, but Mark, as you know, as, as we've seen when we walk through this book, likes to keep it short and sweet on the words of Christ and really focus on his actions and show us Christ as a servant. But, but this is the longest recorded sermon that Mark gives us in this gospel, the Olivet Discourse. Now, context-wise, it's Tuesday or Wednesday of the Passion Week, so Christ and his disciples have already been through the triumphal entry. They've entered Jerusalem. Christ has cleared out the temple in zeal for his father's house. Uh, Two weeks ago, Edwin excellently led us through Christ's encounters with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And so now, this is the middle of the Passion Week, and we're going to pick this story up as Christ and his disciples leave the temple. And really what we're going to see in Mark 13 is that there is a, a plan, an overarching purpose in history. We're marching towards it, And God wants us to understand that the timing is not really of our immediate concern, but we are intended to serve faithfully. And that's what Christ is going to lead his disciples through. So if you will, look with me in Mark chapter 13, and we'll begin with the first four verses. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So Christ and his disciples have left the temple after he spent the day there teaching. They walk to the east of the Temple Mount, down the Kidron Valley, up the other side onto the Mount of Olives, and apparently they they pause there. And this whole transit through the valley, the disciples have been thinking about what Jesus just said. Because the destruction of the temple is huge. It was the center of their culture, the center of their religion. It was the place where God said he would meet with the people. And Christ has just said it's going to be leveled. And so this is, the wheels are turning. 
And by the time they get up to the Mount of Olives, they have some questions for Jesus. And as they're sitting there, they're looking west from the Mount of Olives back towards the Temple Mount. It's in the evening, so the view would have looked something like this. Now, the, the building you see on the Temple Mount there is the Dome of the Rock, because that's a current picture. The temple itself would have been much larger, and Josephus, the first century historian, tells us that it was exceedingly white, the stones that were made of, except for all the parts that were covered in gold. And he said when the sun hit it, the fiery splendor was such that you would have to avert your eyes. So this is the scene where the disciples are thinking, how can this go away? How can this be destroyed? And so they want to understand. And so they ask Jesus three questions. Now in Mark, it may look like two, but Matthew gives us a little more information, and, and there's three questions here. Matthew 24, verse 3 says this, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Three questions. Now, why were these three questions tied together? I mean, the first one makes sense. They say, when will these things happen? Right? That's referring to Christ's statement about the temple coming down. So the first question is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? That, that makes sense. They want to they understand. This is a huge thing for Jesus to say. But why then do they tie that to what will be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? What, why would they assume that those are tied together with the destruction of the temple? To understand that, we have to back up a little bit in the chronology before they enter Jerusalem. So earlier that week, in Luke 19.11, it says this, speaking of the disciples, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the disciples assume that once they get into Jerusalem this time, it's all going to happen. The freedom for the Jews, the coming of the Messiah, this is when it's going to happen. So when they hear Jesus say the temple is coming down, they are thinking, well, that's such a momentous event, we must be right. If the temple's going away, everything has to be about to happen right now. So that second question, how will we recognize the end of the age, makes sense. Because the Old Testament is littered with prophecies of the Jews waiting for freedom, waiting for eternal peace, waiting for the Messiah to come and set up his eternal kingdom. We don't have time to go through all of them, but you can find those in Isaiah 65, Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 8, Zechariah 9, they're all over the place. And so they're thinking, this is it. All those prophecies, it's about to happen right now. And that second question then, if this is the end of the age, if that's going to be ushered in, it's going to be ushered in by the king, by the Messiah. So that leads to the third question of, okay, Jesus, when are you going to start your reign? When are you going to step out of the meek role of rabbi you've been inhabiting and step into the majestic role of king? We want to know when that's about to happen. Now, you can understand why they would kind of assume that all of this is going to happen at the same time due to the way some of the prophecies in the Old Testament are written. Listen to Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now they just witnessed that actually happen. Three days earlier, Jesus literally fulfilled this part of Zechariah chapter 9 as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And they recognized that as prophecy fulfillment. But listen to the very next sentence. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, 
And the king will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So immediately on the back of a sentence about Christ or the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the very next sentence is about the Messiah setting up his eternal kingdom. So you can see how the disciples would assume that all this is going to happen all at the same time. So the questions make sense. So there's the questions. When is the temple destroyed? What's the sign of the end of the age? And what's the sign that the Messiah is about to rule? Now, Jesus is going to answer all three of these questions in his own way. But before he does, he gives a preface before he gets into the times of of what they're asking about. And he's going to explain what it looks like now and what it will continue to look like before all of these things take place. Chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, explain all that. Let's read 5 through 8 as Jesus begins to answer. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and also famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So the first thing Jesus gets into, he doesn't start to answer their when questions and the signs. He says, first of all, you need to know what to expect while you're waiting on all these things. And the first thing he says to expect in verses 5 and 6 is false religious teachers and religious systems. Other times he would call them wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says, this is going to be the norm from now until the end of the age. This will always happen. Note that there's several other expectations So false religious teachers that would mislead people in verses 5 and 6. And then social and environmental turmoil. The social turmoil, he said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nations and kingdoms fighting each other. Social turmoil. And then environmental turmoil, he mentions earthquakes and famines. And again, we've seen these all throughout the history of mankind. And Jesus says that's not the end. This isn't the end. This is just what you need to expect and understand is going to be the normal state of affairs in a fallen and broken world. So don't be afraid, he said. This is what's going to happen. And in the end of verse 8, he said, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's not the end. It's the beginning. The beginning of birth pangs. Now, some would interpret this as meaning, well, once you know we get towards the end, then all these things are going to occur. But, but that's not what Jesus intends with this illustration of birth pangs. Paul picked up on the same illustration that Christ used, and he used it again in Romans chapter 8. And when he's speaking of the creation, he says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now when was the creation subjected to futility and corruption? In the fall. That's when it started. The fall... God pronounced a curse not only on man, but on on the earth as well. And then Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So from the fall until now, Paul says, it's all the pangs of childbirth. So when Jesus uses this, he means the entire scope of human history. We're going to see false religious systems, social and environmental turmoil, But he uses this illustration because, as we all know, in childbirth, there's a ramp up, 
right? The closer you get to the end, the more frequent and the more intense the, ch- the birth pangs are, and that's exactly what Christ intends here as well. These things will always exist, but they will intensify in frequency and, and intensity itself by the end. You can see that in Revelation chapter 6. The first six seals mention all of these things that Jesus just mentioned. There's death, war, famine, and earthquake, but they get worse. Note that Jesus begins this section, though, with a command in verse 5. He said, do not be misled. See to it that no one misleads you. So this is important. These things are always going to happen, and you need to not be distracted or drawn away from what's important by them. Jesus phrases the command in the negative, don't be misled, but if we're going to put that in the positive, it's focus on the right thing, which is me, Jesus is saying. The command is to focus on Christ and not be distracted by everything that's going on around us. That's why he says, don't be afraid. It's not the end. Focus on Christ. The next thing Jesus is going to talk to the disciples about is what they ought to be doing while they wait. He's shown them what to expect. Verses 5 to 8 apply to all of humanity. The rest of this preface that Jesus gives them applies specifically to believers in verses 9 through 13. He says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So now he's talking about what believers are to be doing while they wait. And the first thing he says is, look, you as believers, you're going to be persecuted. We've seen this happen all throughout human history as well, more in some places or times than others. We're fortunate to live in a place where that's not open yet. But he says you're going to be persecuted. Note there there's, Religious persecution, that's verse, the first half of verse 9. He said, you'll be delivered to the, the courts. Literally, that word is Sanhedrins. Right? We know that the Jewish high court was the Sanhedrin, but there were many lower courts, just like we have. And he mentions being flogged in the synagogues. He says, you're going to be persecuted by religious authorities. You're also going to be persecuted by civil authorities. That's the latter half of verse 9. You'll stand before governors and kings. Persecution is going to come for Christians from, from both of those angles. So the question is, why? Why all the persecution? Well, look at verse 10. He says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. This is the heart of what Jesus is saying believers are to be doing while we wait for the end. He said the gospel has to be preached first. And if you look at the latter part of verse 9, it says, all this persecution will be a testimony to them. Verse 10 is the reason for verse 9. Persecution is often a platform for believers to preach the gospel to those who are persecuting them. But he began with a command, again, in verse 9, be on your guard. What are we supposed to be on our guard for? It's not to avoid the persecution, because if you notice in verse 9, Jesus is very specific. He says, you will be delivered. You will be flogged. You will stand before governors and kings. So we're not supposed to be on our guard to avoid the persecution. That's not it. We get the answer to why we're to be on our guard in verse 11. He said, 
But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be on our guard so that we can speak the words the Spirit will give us when we need them so that we can effectively preach the gospel. That's why we're supposed to be on our guard. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, Paul talks about exactly this. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we are also to speak. Exactly what it says right here. We have to be alert and aware. That's what be on your guard means. That verb is actually the same verb Jesus used in verse 2 when he said, Do you see these buildings? Be on your guard means, are you looking? Are you perceiving and aware of what's around you? We're supposed to be aware of the work of the Spirit and attentive to the Spirit himself so that we can effectively preach the gospel. That's our command. That is what the believers are to be doing while we wait on God's timeline. James Edwards, a commentator, puts it this way. He said, The life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but a reliance on the promise of God to bear witness to the gospel in adversity and to be saved for eternal life through that gospel. We ought to expect persecution, but we ought to be alert for the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can preach the gospel while we wait. Interestingly, if you look at the book of Acts, it it reads like a commentary on these verses. Everything that Jesus just said in his preface is in the book of Acts in spades. All of it. And it's no different now. That's what we're to expect. So there's the preface. Now Jesus is going to begin to answer the questions that the disciples posed to him. The first question was, hey, you just said the temple's coming down. How do we know when that's going to happen? Now the answer to this question isn't actually in Mark. We find the answer to this first question in Luke's account. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 22, It says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Now there's a clear transition here from Jesus talking about the general expectations from the current time when he's talking to them all the way to the time of the end, until now. Verses 5 through 13, there was no mention of specific places, specific people, or specific times. But Jesus now says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So this is our our clue that he's now moved into the questions and he's answering this question about the temple. What Jesus describes here is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 by Titus. A mere 40 years after Christ's death, Titus would bring a Roman army And he would do exactly what Jesus describes here. He set up a Roman defensive perimeter all the way around Jerusalem called a circumvallatio, a Roman defensive line encircling the city. And Jesus warned people, you see both of those warnings there in Luke, if you're in the city, get out. If you're not in the city, don't go in. Because Jesus knew what was coming. Unfortunately, most people didn't know Jesus' words or heed them. And as the Romans approached Jerusalem, everyone fled into the city and it made for a terrible siege. Once they were in, they couldn't get out. The city was overflowing with people. There wasn't enough food. And there are some horrific accounts of the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. They ran out of food so quick and it was such a desperate time that people turned to eating each other to survive. Josephus has some descriptions we won't get into, but it was awful. And Jesus 
had given them an escape. He said, look, here's what's coming. When you see the armies approaching and beginning to set up this perimeter, get out. Don't go in. Fortunately, as I said, that's not the way it played out. But you can see Jesus giving the, the signs. They ask, how will we know when the temple's coming down? And Jesus says, this is the sign. When these armies begin to set up this perimeter, flee. Well, back in Mark, Jesus is now going to turn to the, the second question. The disciples ask, what is the sign of the end of the age? How do we know when that's coming? Again, because they thought it was all together. Now in verses 14 through 23, he's going to answer this. So back in Mark, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Now again, we know Jesus is answering a specific question because he's again referencing a specific location and a specific sign. Location are those in Judea. He talks about people out in the fields and working, so this time not a specific reference to the city for those fleeing. But the sign he gives, the abomination of desolation, is a very specific one. Now, Jesus' disciples would have understood what he meant by this, but we need to go back and take a look. So this sign, in Matthew 24, 15, we learn a little bit more. He says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. So Matthew gives us a little more detail. Jesus says, hey, this abomination of desolation, the one that Daniel talked about, when he's standing in the temple, that's your sign. So, what was that? We've got to understand what that is. So, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel mentions this abomination of desolation three times. We'll look at two of them quickly. We don't have time to go into all of it. Anytime you open up the book of Daniel, you can spend, you know, hours there on a single verse. But Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, is really where this abomination of desolation is introduced. Now, quickly, in context, Daniel chapter 9... Daniel has been praying for the salvation of the nation of Israel. He's learned from the book of Jeremiah while they're in captivity in Babylon that the time of their captivity is going to be 70 years. And so this weighs heavy on his heart and he begins praying for the rescue of the nation of Israel. And God sends the angel Gabriel to speak to Daniel and to explain to him some of Israel's history. And so in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, we get the 70 weeks of Daniel. You guys have probably heard of that. Again, we don't have time to go in, into it in detail, but here's the Cliff Notes version. Verse 24, Gabriel explains to Daniel, there are 70 sets of seven years about Israel's history that you need to understand, Daniel. 70 sets of seven years, 490 years. In verse 25, he says 69 of those sets of seven years, so 483 years, marks the amount of time from when the temple will be decreed to be rebuilt until the coming of the Messiah. Now you think about that, that's a very specific prophecy. Gabriel just gave Daniel an exact number of years from one event until the Messiah shows up. Well, the decree to rebuild the temple that was given was given by Artaxerxes to Ezra and Nehemiah. You guys know the stories. Ezra and Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem after the captivity to rebuild the temple and the wall. If you take 483 years from the time Artaxerxes declared the temple to be rebuilt, that brings you right to the life of Christ. Now, depending on which of those two decrees you look at, 
You either come to roughly 26 AD, which is about the time of Christ's baptism and the beginning of his public ministry, or you come to roughly 30 AD, which is the time of Christ's death. Either way, this prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel was exactly fulfilled and brings you all the way from Artaxerxes' decree to Jesus. Now in verse 26, Gabriel says the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. We understand that. In hindsight, that was Jesus being killed. And then he says, after the Messiah is killed, the people of the prince who is to come, so here's a new character, that's important, the people of this prince who is to come are going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple after the death of the Messiah. Well, in Mark 13, Jesus just prophesied that. That's going to happen in AD 70 with Titus. Jesus just talked about that. Then in verse 27, there's a gap, and then we get to the final week, the famous Daniel's 70th week, the final seven years. So there's a gap in between the first 483 and the final seven, and in that gap, this prince, who is to come, makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. Verse 27 says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So that's the cessation of all the worship in the temple. So that means at some point in that gap, the temple was rebuilt. He puts a a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and here it is, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So this prince who is to come makes a covenant with Israel for seven years, and in the, the midpoint, three and a half years in, he does something so horrible in the temple that the Jews can no longer sacrifice as they have been doing at that point. Abomination was a word that the Jews used in this original language to specifically signify something that would make something unclean. So this prince who is to come defiles and profanes the temple in a serious enough way that that the Jews can't use it anymore at that point. The abomination of desolation. And one more thing we have to look at, the, the second mention of abomination of desolation is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Now, chapter 11 in context, again, a ton in there, but it is an unbelievably detailed military campaign history that covers the Egyptians, the Syrians, and the Greek Empire. And the detail in there is so specific to what we now know has happened in history that some historians would say, oh, this had to have been written after the rest of Daniel. It was written 400 years later after the events it's talking about and inserted back into the original text. Yeah, or God just told us what was going to happen. But it's so detailed, there's no doubt. When you get to chapter 11, verse 31, it's talking about a Greek king, and we now know from history, it's talking about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And Antiochus IV was a horrific Roman conqueror. He came and conquered the city of Jerusalem in 167 BC, and he desecrated the temple. This is what Daniel 11:31 says. Forces from him, this king, will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. Sound familiar? And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now again, because of the history before that, in in chapter 30, we know it's speaking of Antiochus IV, and he did exactly this. In 167 BC, he conquered Jerusalem. In the temple, he sacrificed a pig on the altar because he knew that the Jews thought the pigs unclean, and he knew that would ruin the altar for them. He even forced the high priests to drink pig's broth. And then he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple and commanded people to worship the statue of Zeus. 
So he put an end to the sacrifices. He profaned the temple. And he commanded worship to something other than the one true God in God's own house. And he was referred to as the abomination of desolation. So understand that when Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13, when he says the sign of the end of the age is the abomination of desolation, the Jews knew Daniel's prophecy. They knew their recent history at that point of Antiochus. There are other Jewish writings outside the Bible that refer to Antiochus after the fact as the abomination of desolation. And so his disciples would have immediately understood when Jesus says, when you see that happen again, that's the sign of the end of the age. That type of event is going to happen again, and that's the sign you were asking about. It would have been very clear to them. It also exactly matches what Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul's educating the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, because there were some incorrect interpretations. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, The day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that's the same prince from Daniel chapter 9, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Again, the exact same thing that we saw in Daniel 9 and Daniel chapter 11. That's the sign of the end of the age, Jesus says. A powerful world leader desecrating the temple, setting something up in the temple to be worshipped other than the one true God. So what comes after that? If that's the sign, what should we expect next? That's verses 17 through 19. Back in Mark chapter 13. Jesus says, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. That's what comes next, he says. After you see this sign that happens in the midpoint of those final seven years, then things are about to get far worse than anything else that has ever happened in human history or ever will again. It matches with the account of Revelation in Revelation 12.1. Speaking of the same time, it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This tribulation is going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. You can see those in Revelation as well, the rest of those bowl and trumpet judgments in Revelations chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 16 all describe that three and a half year period. And it is absolutely worse than anything we've ever seen up to this point. So Jesus says that's what's coming. But note his compassion before he gets to that in verses 17 and 18. You see, he's, he feels the weight of what that's going to be like for the people at the time. He says, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. That which should be a joy, having a baby, is going to be a burden. He feels the weight of that, and he says, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. Because in the winter, the, the temperatures make it worse. But not only that, the winter in Israel is the time when all of the rivers and streams surge and often overflow. They make valleys impassable, roads wash away. You can see... Even in the pronouncement of a coming judgment, which is just, Christ's compassion shows through. Not only the Son, but the Father. Because the next thing we see is the hope in verse 20. 
Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. God is merciful even in the midst of judgment. This is the time when God is pouring out his righteous, correct, and just judgment on the earth. And even during that, he shows mercy. He shortens the days for the sake of his elect, his people, his children. And finally, in this section, Christ gives us a warning. Verses 21 through 23. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now this may sound like a reiteration of the, the warning Jesus gave in verses 5 and 6 about false religious teachers and systems. But there are key differences in this warning than in the warning about the general time of, of waiting. Now he's talking about the end. And specifically he says there's going to be people that not only speak in my name, but that claim to be the Messiah. There are those where people would say Christ is here or Christ is there. He says don't believe that. Another difference is that they'll be accompanied by signs and wonders which did not accompany the false teachers in previous ages. He says that in verse 22. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, again, Paul speaking about the end as well. says, Then that lawless one, again the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And that one, the one who is coming, is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. We also read in Revelation, we're not going to go there, but the false prophet who works with and for the Antichrist is also empowered to perform miracles. In Revelation it says he can even call fire down from heaven. So in the end, the false religious systems, like everything else, will be worse and more deceptive for the masses. And they'll deceive many. They deceive, for the most part, the entire earth, with the exception of those who believe in Christ. Do you see those two little words in verse 22? For false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The hope for you and I and for anyone alive at that time who believes in Christ is it is not possible to deceive us. I mean, we can be deceived in ourselves, but if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit cannot be fooled. The Holy Spirit in us is that which keeps us from damning heresy. And although there will be such convincing and miraculous things going on in false religious systems in the end times, true believers will not be fooled. Because we have the Spirit. John 16, 13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Spirit will keep us on the right path. And then Jesus ends this part of the sermon in verse 23 with another imperative, another command, but take heed. Same thing, be alert, be aware. That's why I'm telling you these things. That was the second question. Jesus now moves into the, the third question. He's answered, when is the temple going to be destroyed? What's the sign of the end of the age? And now the last one, what is the sign of your coming? And again, they meant by that, when are you going to take over as king and reign? You're a great teacher, but we want to see you on the throne. When does that happen? Jesus answers that starting in verse 24. 
He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. That's the end of the story. That's what it's all leading up to. Now there's a post-credit scene, right, for those of you Marvel fans out there. That, that's coming later with the, the thousand-year reign and, and, and the new heaven and new earth. But this is the end of the current story. This is when Christ comes back as a king the way that the disciples are asking about. And they said, what is the sign of the end of your, or, or the sign of, of your coming as king? And he says, don't worry about it. You're not going to miss it. <laughs> it's going to be obvious. The signs will be obvious. The sun is going to be dark. The moon isn't going to reflect its light. The stars in heaven are going to come down and the entire heavens are going to be shaken. You're not going to miss it. For those of you that have an NASB, you'll note that the latter part of verse 24 and 25 are in caps. That just means it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually a quote from dozens of places in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is littered with prophecies of Christ's second coming. And this sign always precedes that. Isaiah 13.10, Ezekiel 32.7, Joel 2.10, Joel 2.31, Revelation 6.12, the list goes on. Here's one example, Joel 3.14-16. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people. When Jesus decides to come back and take back what is rightfully his, you'll know. The signs will be obvious. Next thing Jesus says is the majesty will be obvious. So when we see that sign, what happens next? Verse 26, then... They will see, that is everyone alive at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's how he's going to come back. He came the first time in a stable. The second time is not going to be quite so meek. When it says that he comes in clouds, that reference there is not likely reference to physical clouds, although that may attend his coming as well. The reference there is most likely the way it's used in context, a reference to the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God. You remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were led during the day by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When they set up the tabernacle, the glory of God descended in a cloud on the tabernacle and the same thing happened when they built Solomon's temple and dedicated it. Remember we studied that in 1 Kings chapter 8. He was here way back in 1 Kings. Walk through that. We got a lot of turnover. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon finally gets to build a temple for God the way David, his father, had wanted to. They dedicate it, and when they set it up, First Kings 8, 10, and 11, we read this. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's the cloud it's talking about when Jesus comes back. He came the first time in a stable. He comes the second time wrapped in the Shekinah glory of the one true God. With great power and glory. So why does he come back? We've seen the sign and, and how he comes back. What's he coming back for? Well, there's a lot of reasons why Christ comes back the second time. One of the main ones is judgment. 
But here in this context, speaking to his disciples, Jesus doesn't talk about that reason. That's not his focus in, in this sitting. His focus in this sitting with his disciples is, I'm coming back to gather those who are my own. I come back to gather the rest of the family. Now this gathering is not the rapture. And I wish we had time to get into the difference in the rapture and, and the second coming in the scripture. We don't have time. The rapture occurred prior to the tribulation. We know that because all the, the sections of scripture that talk about the rapture are very different in their attributes than those that talk about the second coming. The rapture, you can see in, in other scriptures such as 1 Thessalonians 4, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3. I think I put some of those on the handout. So you can go back and read those and look at the differences. But, but this is the second coming. So if the church-age saints have already been raptured before the tribulation, who is Jesus gathering now? Because they've already been taken up. When he comes back this time, he's gathering those who have come to repentance and faith in Christ during the tribulation. He took everyone who believed at the rapture, but, but the gospel has been being preached throughout this entire time. In Revelation, we learn there's 144,000 Jewish missionaries that Jesus seals, and their mission is to preach the gospel in the tribulation. Then there are the two witnesses. Maybe Moses and Elijah, we're not really told, but regardless, there's two witnesses who, with miracles, preach the gospel. And if that's not enough, despite the fact that God is pronouncing a holy and just judgment on the earth, he sends angels to fly over the earth and preach the gospel. The Father is unrelenting in his effort to give everyone a chance to repent and come to him in faith. Even in the midst of judgment, angels themselves are preaching. And so there are those who, who believe during the tribulation and Jesus comes back and gathers them together with the church-age saints. And it's at this point when Old Testament saints receive their resurrection as well. So he comes to gather the family. James Edwards puts it this way, the grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the word of Jesus. In the assertion that in those days, humanity will no longer usurp history from its rightful owner, but will relinquish it to its Lord and maker who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil and suffering and gather his own to himself. Amen to that. That's the end of the story. Note that as Jesus talks to his disciples here about his second coming, there's no discussion of the battle of Armageddon, of the thousand-year reign, of the fall and defeat of Satan. He speaks about those things elsewhere, but here again in this context, he only focuses on one thing at the second coming. That is, I'm coming back. That's the focus. Not everything else that happens, but just the fact that he's coming. Now, why would that be? Think about who he's talking to and where we are in the Passion Week. We just talked about the fact that the disciples expect Jesus to take his throne now. And he knows that their expectations are not going to be met and they're going to be crushed. They think Jesus is about to rise up and cast off the Romans. Instead, he's about to be beaten down and crucified by the Romans. They expect him to take his place on the throne and he's about to take his place in a tomb. They're going to be crushed. Jesus wants this to be ringing in their ears when those things happen, I am coming back. That's what he wants you and I to know as well as we wait. He's coming back. That brings us to Christ's own application 
for his lesson to the disciples today. I didn't have to apply this for you because Christ does it. He's going to give two illustrations of, of what he wants them to take away from this teaching in verses 28 to 37. The first one is in 28 through 32. It's an illustration of a fig tree. Jesus says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. He says, this is what I want you to get from this, guys. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The signs that I've just talked about, you ask about them and I gave them to you, but the signs are to tell you that the end is coming, not when. The fig tree in Israel blooms early in spring. It's one of the earliest trees that blooms. And he's saying, look, when, when that happens, you don't know the date summer is arriving. You just know it's near. Could be four weeks, six, maybe eight. It doesn't give you a date. All that tells you is that summer is coming and it's somewhat close. That's all you need to know. You wanted times. I'm just telling you, focus on the fact that it is coming. Then in verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, we could spend the whole 50 minutes just talking about this, right? There's been a lot of discussion on exactly what this verse means and what Jesus intended. We don't have time to get into all of it, but it depends on what you think Jesus is referring to when he says these things and how he uses the phrase this generation. So some would say when he says these things in this generation, he means the literal generation that he's talking to. And in that case, these things would just refer to the original question, the destruction of the temple. And that could be, if you look in 13 closely, Jesus does use these things in those days in a bit of a separate way. So he could just be saying, some of you here will see that original question, the destruction of the temple. And of the four he's talking to, one of them would, John. John was still alive in AD 70, and he would see things happen exactly as Christ predicted. Another interpretation is that these things means everything Christ just talked about, from the destruction of the temple to his second coming, in which case this generation can't mean a literal generation. That would be the word being used in its broader context of an age or a period of time. And it is used that way, even in Mark itself. In Mark 8.38, we're not going to go there, but Jesus uses generation in a way that would encompass all of, all of believers. So that could be it. Some would say that this generation means those that were alive in the end times, the most recent thing Jesus just spoke about. Basically saying once the end starts, it's going to be quick. The same generation that sees the abomination of desolation set up is also going to see the end of, of all things. It's going to be rapid. Possible as well. Or Jesus may have intended multiple interpretations. We've seen that happen in prophecy many times where there's a near-term fulfillment and a distant fulfillment, just like Antiochus Epiphanes being called the abomination of desolation, but that also referring to the Antichrist. Jesus could have meant all of those things. Regardless, the focus is not on verse 30, but on verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's what he wants them to key in on. That's what we should key in on. We don't need to get lost in, in discussions of, of verse 30. Jesus says, your initial question that prompted this whole discourse was on the destruction of the temple. And, and let me just tell you guys, it's not just the temple. It's Jerusalem, the entire earth, and the heavens. It's all going away. You want to focus on something that's lasting, something that's eternal? Focus on my words. Yeah, the temple's impressive, but it's not going to be around forever. My word is the only thing that lasts. That's what he wants them to see. 
That's what we need to understand as well. Right? What do we kind of focus and assume is, is perpetual? Do you think the sun will always rise in the east, Berean? It won't. Do you think the Big Dipper is always going to point to the North Star? It's not. All of those things are going away. The one thing that lasts is the Word of God. Is that how you see it? Do we believe this is of more lasting permanence and power than the sun? That's the way Jesus saw it. And finally, in verse 32, he says, Forget the calendar. He says, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Again, we could spend a lot of time on this. There's been a lot of theological discussions on how Jesus could say, I don't even know when I'm coming the second time. I don't think we need to get too deep to understand what he's saying here. When Jesus put on human flesh and came down to live among us, he voluntarily gave up the exercise of some of his divine attributes. He gave up none of his divine essence or character. He was fully God and fully man. But he gave up voluntarily the exercise of some of his divine power. The easiest way to see that is in his omnipresence. As part of the triune God, Christ is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. But when he came to the earth, he relinquished access to omnipresence and confined himself to one place in one time. If that's true of his omnipresence, why should we see it any different with his omniscience? He voluntarily gave up the access to all of the knowledge of God when he lived as a man in order to live as one of us. We see that in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. That's the, the verse that talks about Christ emptying himself. Fully God, but didn't access all of his divine attributes. And so he says, look, the angels in heaven don't know when I'm coming back. So guess what? You fishermen don't need to know. And if that wasn't enough, I don't even know in my first coming. I don't even have access to that information. Why? Because it's not necessary. Forget the calendar, he says. Forget it. That's not what's important. I just told you what was important, my words and the fact that I'm coming back. Forget the calendar, guys. His next illustration is, the Master's Journey, verses 33 to the end. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, this illustration of a master going off on a journey was extremely appropriate, again, given the context of where they are in the Passion Week. Jesus, not too long from now, is going to leave his disciples. And he's going to leave them in charge, just like this master on a journey. And if, if you think about this in, in context of the first century, when a, a household owner went off on a business trip, he didn't give the, the details of his business trip to the servants. Why? Well, first of all, it wasn't any of their business. And second of all, they wouldn't have understood it anyway. So instead, he assigns them tasks to carry out while he's gone, conducting his own business. And this is what's going to happen when Jesus leaves. He's going off to do things that none of us can fully understand, but he gives his disciples specific tasks to take care of while he's away on his journey. You and I have tasks just the same as the disciples did. 
Some of those tasks are general, right? Preach the gospel, that's one that Jesus focused on just in this discourse alone. There are others. You guys know a lot of the verses, the general tasks. I mean, Micah 6, 8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's a task all of us have. There are also specific tasks. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do that we might walk in them. Each one of us was born into a specific point in history with specific talents, abilities, experiences, with spheres of influence, with specific people. There are things that each of you are assigned to do for the kingdom of God that I cannot. And there are things that I am assigned to do for the kingdom of God that you cannot. We have individual tasks. Let me just take a minute to say that not the least of that is spiritual gifts. We learn that spiritual gifts are specifically for the edification of the saints, for the building up of the church. If you haven't yet found a way to use your spiritual gift to benefit the church and your fellow believers, then you're not accomplishing your assigned task. So do the tasks. And then we're told to, to be on the alert and be ready for the master to come back. Right, again, Jesus is saying, look, you, you don't need to understand the timing. What I expect of you is to behave faithfully and obey during the time, even if you spend most of it waiting. An athlete can't tell the coach, hey, you know what? I'm going to sit out most of the game. You just let me know when the final two minutes are in, and then, man, I'm going to come in and play hard. No, you're going to find yourself on the bench the whole game. An actor can't tell the director, hey, you know, I know I'm, I'm the lead role, but uh, yeah, I really only want to do the final scene. Just come and let me know when we get there. No, you have a role to play throughout the entire play. That's what Jesus is saying here. Behave and obey faithfully. Do the tasks I've assigned you to do. And when the end comes, just be ready. That's what he wants his disciples to, to understand as he went through this, this discussion of their questions on the end of things. They thought it was about to happen right then. We know that's not true. Jesus says, look here, I'll, I'll tell you the signs because I want the rest of my disciples to know them too, but you need to understand what the important part is. Now we've seen the applications all the way through this, right? All these imperatives that Christ gave. So let's just go back and, and sum them up. The, the big picture of Mark 13 is that the future is under the Father's control. He has a plan. We're not marching through just a, you know, a redundant Groundhog Day. We're marching towards a definite end. It's under the Father's control, and it's the Son's job to execute it. Our job while we wait is to focus on Christ, be attentive to the Spirit so that we can effectively preach the gospel. That was the, the message for the preface. And then even when he got into the signs, he wants us to have hope and confidence in the future despite all of the, the tribulation, the increasing birth pangs. For believers, we don't have to worry or be concerned about that. He wants us to have hope and confidence based on two things. His eternal word and the fact that he is coming back. Every one of us that belongs to Christ will be reunited with him. Either in the rapture or, or later if you're not a believer now. And finally, he says, don't worry about the timing. I know you guys want to know the timing. Peter and Andrew, James and John. You don't need to understand that. You just serve faithfully in the time that you have. And let me worry about the rest. Pray that this would 
help inform your week as you walk through it, that you would draw courage, comfort, and solace in the fact that Christ is coming back and that everything is under his control, that there's a definite end and a purpose as we walk through it. But don't worry about all the end. Just focus on completing your assigned tasks here and now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God to give us your word. You've told us that one of the reasons you give us these prophecies is so that we would know that you are God because there is no one else who knows the end from the beginning. Thank you that throughout this entire discourse Christ gave to his, his inner circle that there was hope throughout all of it. Father, may we focus on that which you have given us to do in the here and now. May we focus on Christ and keep our eyes on him and his eternal word and be in it regularly that we might maintain our focus. And may we be attentive to the Spirit through prayer and supplication through the reading of your word and the worshiping of fellow believers so that when our time comes, in whatever circumstance it may arrive, we may effectively preach the gospel. And may we be diligent to be faithful servants in the tasks you have assigned us that when you do return, whenever that may be, we would be found faithful. Give us hope and confidence in you this week, not in the signs. May we not be troubled by what happens in the world around us because you have said it must take place. May we just take all those opportunities to serve. We pray that we would do this through the Spirit for the glory of your name. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.